turn our eyes to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray that by looking to Him, by studying Him even today, studying His atonement He provided on the cross, or that we would be encouraged, that we would be thrilled, that we would be thankful, that we would be worshipful. And Lord, even those who don't know You, we pray that they would turn their lives to Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to focus on Jesus Christ, who has indeed given us the victory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's always a blessing to be with you today. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Here we continue our look at the atonement. Jesus, Isaiah 53 says, was crushed for our iniquities. The atonement Christ accomplished on the cross is the centerpiece of His ministry on earth, which is indeed the centerpiece of human history. Truly, the atonement is the consummation of all that was promised from the beginning, all of history itself, and will even be the theme of our song in eternity. Take away the atonement, and all you're left with is a God who is powerless to save. Take away the atonement, you have a God who only judges and is condemning and has no mercy or love. Take away the atonement and the resurrection is simply an act of a selfish God. Take away the atonement and we're left in our sins and therefore we are to be most pitied in the human race. The atonement is the full unmitigated payment for wrongdoing. It is a price paid to secure complete forgiveness for sin and therefore it is a price paid for our own Redemption. What the Bible presents to us is that Jesus in His crucifixion is the atonement for our sin. That's why John said when he saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Paul said that God put forward Jesus Christ as a blood atonement, a propitiation for the forgiveness of sins to be received by faith. It's why Peter said, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. And it's why Jesus said of Himself, For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, but to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now this is why Matthew Mark, Luke, and John spent so much time in their Gospels dealing and detailing for us what happened on the cross. And it's why we too are taking these weeks leading up to Easter, leading up to Resurrection Sunday, learning in a little more in-depth way about the atonement. As in our study, in our five-year study now in the book of Matthew, we've come to this point in Matthew where we've been studying the crucifixion of Christ, and it's a perfect time for us to slow it down a little bit and look at the truths surrounding the atonement of Jesus Christ. Folks, we need this. If you're already a genuine follower of Jesus, you need to dive deeper into the truths of the atonement. You need to feel the value and glory of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And as Peter said, you need this because it means to call you out of sin, further out of sin, to following Him. 
Of course, if you're not a true follower of Christ, you need this so that you will put your hope and faith and trust in Christ. For it was Jesus indeed who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. So we've been spending these weeks looking at the truths of the atonement. Let me read our text. I'm going to read the whole section, verses 47 to 54 of Matthew 27. Follow along as I read aloud. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. They went into, his, into the holy city and appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this, is, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Last time I ended with that first verse of that familiar hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior, Remember the words, man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Listen to the second verse, bearing shame and scoffing rude, here it is, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Isn't that good? So these three weeks we're looking at three aspects of the atonement. The first one we saw last week, and that is the fact that this atonement was a necessary atonement. That's one, if you were taking notes. That's, it's a necessary atonement. God in His utter holiness, He cannot just sweep away evil. He can't just take evil and sin and just sweep it under a rug. All evil must be punished. God's holy justice demands it. He is finally responsible. If He's sovereign, if He is indeed the sovereign creator of this universe, then He is responsible ultimately for justice on, in this universe. And the Bible teaches that He indeed accounts for every evil, every last molecule of evil God will deal justly. So He can't just forgive sins like sometimes when we talk about forgiving one another or bearing or tolerating one another. Well, this is just something that that person does and I just sort of ignore it or put up with it or bear with it and I just don't say anything. I'll just won't make a big stink about it. I'm just going to sort of ignore it. That's not forgiveness. That's certainly not God's forgiveness. 
God can only forgive because the penalty has been paid by Christ on the cross. This is so that God's perfect and holy justice and His love must coexist. They don't conflict with one another. They don't cancel out one another. They must coexist. And so there must be atonement. There must be justice for sin. It is a necessary atonement. The reason that God can forgive is because justice for our sin has been executed. The crime was committed. The penalty for that crime was paid by Christ on the cross so that when you turn from your sin, believing in Christ, forgiveness is provided to you based on His atoning work. I didn't mention this last time, but this touches even on our own forgiveness of one another. How do we forgive one another, or why can we forgive one another? We can forgive one another, particularly we can forgive other Christians when they repent, because we know that God's justice for that sin, whatever sin they committed against us, has been paid in full. And if we think we need to execute some sort of our own justice, some sort of cold shoulder or silent treatment or whatever, if we feel like we need to do that, basically what we're saying is, Lord, we don't believe that your justice on Christ for this sin is sufficient. I've got to add to it by not forgiving this person, even though they're repentant and broken and seeking forgiveness. No, we forgive because God has forgiven And the way God has forgiven is because He poured out His justice for that sin on Christ on the cross. And we can also offer forgiveness to those who are not Christians or perhaps never seek repentance. Why? Because they also will pay for that sin. God will deal with that. If they're not a believer in particular, they will pay for those sins. They will pay for that sin. Again, if you feel like you need to judge that person or give them the cold shoulder or not offer forgiveness when they repent, if you, if you do that, basically what you're saying is, God, whatever justice you execute upon them in their eternity is not sufficient. I must add to it. No, we believe in the full, perfect, holy justice of God. And either that sin is paid for by Christ on the cross or they pay for it in eternity. And so we can rest in God. We can forgive others as God has forgiven us. In the end, God's holiness, His justice will perform perfectly. It will be total. All sins, all evil will be accounted for. Nothing is swept under the rug. In order for Him to be both the just judge and the loving justifier, the atonement was absolutely necessary. It's vital and central to His work in the world. It's the climax of what Jesus did on the cross. This atonement is a necessary atonement. The second point we're looking at today, and I just alluded to that in the song. In the cross, there is also a substitutionary atonement. A substitutionary atonement. Now, that is not a word any one of us use outside of this context. I understand that. If you use the word substitutionary this last week for something aside outside of the atonement, come see me afterwards and I'll slap you. That's just silly. No one uses that word, substitutionary, but it has become the common word that we use when we talk about the atonement because it it is indeed an atonement that is substitutionary. It is a substitute. It means what Jesus did on the cross in His atonement was something He did in our place. It wasn't for His sin. It was for our sin. Now, the idea of substitutionary atonement has a long, beautiful history in the Bible. 
fact, you could say we even see it right at that first sin. God promised death if Adam and Eve took of the fruit and ate. They indeed took of the fruit and they ate. And they did die spiritually, and they began the physical process of death, but God didn't kill them right away. What did He kill? He killed a sacrifice. He killed a, a pure animal. And that animal's purity covered their shame and their sin, and that animal died in their place. He died for them. Their sin covered the animal. God killed the animal. The animal's purity covered Adam and Eve so that they could commune with God. This is substitutionary atonement right at the very beginning. Years later, when God was establishing His people, His nation, you remember He started with a covenant and a covenant document all hinging on the Ten Commandments, and He laid out the rules, the regulations, the stipulations, the, the moral requirements, all those regulations flowing from the Ten Commandments, how they would relate to one another, how they would relate with Him. But because of original and personal sin, it would be impossible for them to do this. And so in the following chapters and the rest of Exodus and in all the rest of the Pentateuch, God laid out how they would make up and find forgiveness when they failed God. And so God provided in that covenant, He provided a substitutionary atonement, how their sins could be dealt with, how they could continue to commune with one another and with God was through substitutionary atonement. Keep your finger in Matthew, and we're going to spend most of our time this morning in Leviticus chapter 16, so flip there to Leviticus chapter 16. Now, while you're turning there, I just want to give you a little bit of a running start so that we can understand these Old Testament passages. The first thing you remember, these people, these Israelites, they had been saved out of Egypt, and you remember the story. We even studied this some weeks ago. We touched on this, so I won't go into depth in this. God leveled ten plagues against Egypt to save His people. The first nine effectively had no effect on the people of Israel, didn't really touch them. The tenth plague was different. The tenth plague, God would send His justice on everyone, Jew or Gentile, Jew or in that case Egyptian, because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their pagan worship, God would send His justice on everyone, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Egyptian. And how would they be saved? Well, God gave the people of Israel a story of substitutionary atonement. He, he gave them a practice whereby they would sacrifice a pure lamb and they would place the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. If they sacrificed that pure lamb and put his blood on the sides and the top of their door, then the angel, the death angel of God, would pass over them. The angel had been sent to kill the firstborn son, effectively wiping out their family as an act of eternal judgment upon that family. But if they relied on what God had provided in the substitutionary atonement, the death angel would pass over. Of course, this was the genesis of the Passover feast. This pure lamb would die in place of the firstborn son. So just mark this in your mind before we even get to Leviticus 16. At the very minimum, before we even come to this other festival, 
the children of Israel had at least two major stories, the, the origin story of Adam and Eve, that first sin and sacrifice, and then also the 10th the plague in Egypt with that sacrifice, and they had one annual feast marking that, the Feast of Passover, that taught them about substitutionary atonement. That's the minimal. There were other things that they knew. There were other things they would have understood, the other sacrifices. Every Hebrew knew these things at the very minimum before we even get to what happens in Leviticus 16. One other thing I want to give you, just some information again, before we get to Leviticus 16, is what was happening in terms of temple worship. You understand that God designed and helped them build this temple, this moving temple. They called it a tabernacle. God had the Israelites build this moving temple, and Aaron's sons, Aaron and his sons were priests, Aaron being the high priest or the chief priest. They were the ones responsible for what happened there at the tabernacle or temple. In the middle of the temple, there was a place called the holy place, and the holy place was a table, a lampstand, a little altar for burning incense. There was also inside the holy place another room called the most holy place or the holy of holies, and inside that room was, of course, the ark of the covenant. Most of you know about this. This is where they kept the ark, this container. Inside that container were the document, was held the document of treaty between God and the people of Israel. That was the covenant, the ark. They kept the covenant. There were some other things that reminded them also of God's presence and God's provision. On top of the ark, on the lid, as it were, there were two angels whose wings touched. And there, the Hebrews would say, was the face of God. They believe, just as we do, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all over the world. He's not bound by space and time, but His personage, His authority, His power was right there on top, dwelling on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which they called the mercy seat, a place where God would abide and dwell and deal mercifully with His people. Well, all of this is established in the mind of the people of Israel. The tabernacle has been built, and that brings us to Leviticus chapter 16. Let me read to you, beginning in verse 2, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come out, come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. And that's what he's talking about. Don't go to the holy place inside the veil, meaning the holy of holies. He's not allowed to go into the holy of holies before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. In other words, that verse, verse basically says, everybody is forbidden, even, Mo, even Aaron himself is forbidden to go into the holy of holies, except verse 3. This is the only way, this is the one exception, verse 3, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place. Now, there's one exception. At one point, he can come into the Holy of Holies with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then Put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. 
And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. Azazel means desolation or wilderness. And this was an important theme for the people of Israel, right? They had traveled through the desolation to get to the Holy Land. God had brought them to the Holy Land through the desolation. The desolation was a, a, a place of nothingness, a place of emptiness. There was nothing there. There wasn't even food there. God had to provide for them miraculously in order for them to even eat. That's the desolation, Azazel. So one goat marked for the Lord, one goat marked for Azazel. Verse 9, And Aaron shall present the goat which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Verses 11 14 tells him that Aaron is to kill the bull and the ram to, to atone for his own sin, to cleanse his, his own sin, his family's sin. He's to burn incense, it says, and fill those rooms with smoke, again representing the, the presence of God. He's to take the blood of the bull and uh, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, representing again his own, the atonement for his own sin. He's now cleansed. Let me get to verse 15. Then. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgression, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness uncleannesses. So, you get the picture. He sacrifices the bull for himself, and he does the same thing with the goat for the people of Israel, and he goes into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkles them, that blood, on the mercy seat before God. You follow? Verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting at the, and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So now we're dealing with the live goat. The other goat has been slaughtered. The blood has been presented. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Skip down to 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and do no work, either the native or the stranger or who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. 
And this shall be a statute forever to you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded. Well, what is this event? There's the annual ritual in September called Yom Kippur. Translated into English, it is what? Day of Atonement. So I want you to get this in your mind. The Passover, which happened in springtime, was happening at the time of Christ's death. Yom Kippur, which happened in the fall time, the autumn, usually in September, as well as all the incidental sacrifices throughout Israel's life, going all the way back to even Adam and Eve, all of these things drill into their minds the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. This doctrine is omnipresent on the pages of Scripture. It's undeniable. It's everywhere. You cannot read and study the Bible and say, well, Christ's sacrifice was just an example of someone who died for something he believes in. Or he just was treated terribly. It's an example of how really strongly religious people are bad. No, the point of the crucifixion is to provide substitutionary atonement. It's everywhere. Now, there's two truths that we can draw from what we see in Leviticus 16. Maybe you want to scribble these down. Two truths that, that relate to Jesus Christ, and really they're related to these two goats. There's a third idea, deduction, that I'm going to bring to you. But truth number one is this. Because of man's fallenness and God's holiness, this sacrifice is a penal substitution, meaning it is a penalty. Think of that first goat. First goat, that first goat is not spared any mercy, that first goat is not given any kind of uh, leave of absence or, well, you're just such a cute goat, we're not going to kill you this time. No, this goat is slaughtered. It is killed. When you begin to study what the priests did at the temple and the life of Israel, it was a bloody affair. It, it is said that Sometimes, particularly during Passover and uh, some other times in the calendar, Jewish calendar, that there could be so much blood that it would flow down the streets and end down into the valley of Hinnom and Kidron. There was so much blood. There were so many sacrifices, one after the other. And, and here is yet another sacrifice. This is not a beautiful thing. This is not a wonderful thing. This is something that's gross. It's something that's sad. It's something that's tragic. And thinking back to our study in Matthew, especially a few weeks ago, as we walk through all the different individuals involved and all the sin and depravity that was on display to get the Son of God on the cross, it was a sad event. It was a tragic event. It was a horrifying event. It was a gross event. And that's what happened. This goat was taken and it was slaughtered. If you're a city boy like me, you don't see this kind of blood. If you're a farmer and you do stuff like that, I understand. I remember going to a farm one time with a friend and um, his dog, one of his dogs had had some puppies. And uh, they had some birth defects. 
And he just went out there and shot him. Didn't bat an eye. To me, I was aghast. I couldn't believe this. I love dogs. For most of us, we look at this, and it's a gross event. This poor goat, pure goat, actually, would be taken and would be slaughtered. And he would take that blood, he would sprinkle it up there, and that slaughter is to represent the penalty that was due us, right? It was, the people understood that slaughter, that blood, that death was supposed to be ours. But instead, this goat, goat number one, received it. Truth number two, and this is what the second goat represented, is that the people were reminded that because of that penal substitution, that first goat, their sins are forgiven. They're forgotten. They are sent into nothingness. They are sent to the desolation, Azazel. God has forgiven their song, he, their, their sin. His, he no longer remembers their sin in a relational or judicial way. The people of Israel knew this. They understood this. They sang about this. I was reading this week, Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. Verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love to those who fear Him, as far as the east is from the west. So far does He remove our transgressions from us. So what a glorious and wonderful covenant to live in. Those people in the Old Testament living in this time where God had provided, year after year God would provide forgiveness of sins, atonement, substitutionary atonement, to take away the penalty of sin and to take those sins in terms of a judicial matter, in terms of even a relational matter, to take those sins and wipe them off the earth, sent to desolation. And God could do that because He had provided substitutionary atonement. You notice they lay their hands, both goats actually, they lay their hands on them and they confess sin. One goat is punished for that sin, one goat, that sin is forgiven. I think this is what every human really longs for, isn't it? The forgiveness of sin. Every human knows down deep inside. Now, whether the Holy Spirit brings them to an understanding of the gospel and the truth of Christ that is in His arena, I think every person has, as Blaise Pascal would say, a God-shaped void, a void in their heart and a, a desire to be forgiven and here in this old covenant, God had provided a way. And that way was through substitutionary atonement. Now, I said there's a third sort of inductive truth from Leviticus 16. And it is that these sacrifices, in the end, were not sufficient. How do we know that? Because they had to do it over and over, year after year after year. Hundreds and hundreds of years. The best we can tell, some 13, 1400 years of these goats being sacrificed. Yom Kippur over and over and over, year after year. Not one of those goats could suffice for all their sin. And so there's an idea, even back in Leviticus 16, an idea those original people of God would understand, maybe one day there will be a sufficient substitutionary 
atonement. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered since worshipers having been once cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? In other words, it's just proving the insufficiency of these sacrifices. In these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood, and bulls, blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, these sacrifices, as wonderful and gracious and wonderful as that covenant is, and those sacrifices are that God would provide this, they are insufficient. They are a shadow. On top of that idea of it being a shadow, there's all these other promises. Beginning at the very first sacrifice, there's these promises. There would, there would be one who would come and deal a death blow to evil and a death blow to sin, to do away with Satan and all evil once and, once and for all. And as God revealed Himself progressively through the Old Testament to the people of Israel, He began to realize that He would send that Redeemer, that promised one, and that promised one would come and He would be a suffering servant. He himself would pay the ultimate price. He would be the sacrificial lamb. That's Isaiah 53, isn't it? He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God put him to grief. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say there in chapter 10, every priest stands daily at a sacrifice, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Well, let's finish by looking at Matthew again. Verse 45, Matthew 27, now from the sixth hour, that would be noon, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. We talked about this last time. The darkness was a manifest presence of God's judgment there's no indication from Scripture that this was some sort of weather event or something else. This was a supernatural, visible manifestation of God's judgment. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. One of them took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed to give it to him to drink. Others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What's happening? Substitutionary atonement. Jesus is being slaughtered. He's being judged. His blood is being cast upon the mercy seat. When he cries out, 
This is not a, a question of debate. Lord, would you explain to me what's going on here? Jesus knew why God was punishing him. In fact, I believe back at age 12 when he went to the Passover feast, he began to realize these things. He was to be the sacrificial lamb. He was to be the substitution. No, this cry is a cry of utter anguish. As I said last time, it's the saddest words in human history. It's the only time in human history that a human can cry out to God and faith and love and not be answered and only be answered with justice and judgment. All of God's hatred for your sin, all of His spite and anger for your sin was placed upon Christ. God poured out His judgment just like that priest would tear open the throat of that goat, God poured out His judgment upon Christ. The people shouldn't have been, but they were confused. Try to get Him something to drink, probably as a manner of mocking Him. And they do mock Him. Let's wait and see if Elijah shows up. They chide him again. It says in verse 50, he cried with a loud voice, and we know what he said then. The other gospel writers tell us, he says, it is finished, it is paid in full. What is paid? Well, it's the penalty for our sin. He was a substitution, and it's paid in full. He cried out loudly. With Matthew, the other gospel writers tell us this is the last thing that he shouted, but we do know that he probably at that point under his breath said from what we see in Psalm 22, Father, into your hands do I commit my spirit. And Jesus died. A necessary and substitutionary atonement for our sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this atonement and I think of how Wonderful and relieving it must have been to live in that first covenant, that old covenant, to know that you had provided a substitute for sin. But using the language of Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, how much better it is to be in this covenant, to be living in a time where you have sent your Son. We can look back and we understand the full picture Thank you for fulfilling that first covenant, bringing it to its end, which was the second covenant, the new covenant, the New Testament in Jesus Christ. We glorify you for this. We thank you for this. And Father, I pray that you would give us a desire to honor Christ. It is, this was done so that not only we would be right with you, but as Paul said, and I read earlier, Paul said, so that sin may be no more in our hearts and our lives, or this may sanctify us. We pray that even studying this would sanctify us. As always, Lord, we do pray for those who haven't repented. Give them faith now. Grant them repentance. Give them a desire. Open their eyes and their hearts to their own sin. Convict them, Holy Spirit, of their own sin. 
and of the glorious, wonderful truth that Christ has indeed died for them. Grant them faith and repentance even today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand with me for a benediction. May we leave this place with a wonderful assurance that if we have believed in Him, by His death, the Righteous One has made us righteous by carrying away our iniquities. Amen.